This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who do we have on the show today? Sarge, good to see you, mate. We are talking to Massimo Campagna today, who is a program officer at the Australian Red Cross, focusing on the Pacific region. With a Bachelor of Urban and Regional Planning with honours from RMIT under his belt, Massimo scored an intern position as a program management intern at the United Nations Human Settlements Program, otherwise known as the UN Habitat uh, Program, at the Regional Office for Australia and the Pacific in Fukuoka. Fukuoka in Japan in 2017, which kickstarted his passion for working in the not-for-profit space. Massimo then went on to complete a Master's of Development Studies at the University of Melbourne, after which he secured an internship in the Disaster and Crisis Response International Program at the Australian Red Cross, where he's been working ever since, uh, ever since 19 rather. Massimo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's really odd to have your, your life right out to you like that in dot point form. We should uh we should make a little side hustle uh, making people's LinkedIn bios I think from, from yeah, all the ones we've done yeah. here, um mate well really happy to have you on today and you're kind of one of the I guess first people we've really spoken to from the not for profit space so keen to hear about what you do at the Australian Red Cross as a as a program officer um in the Pacific region why don't you run us through that Yeah sure it might be um better for people to hear about like the Red Cross system itself uh, generally it's a fundamentally international organisation. Um, that has regional and domestic tiers. So the Secretariat sort of HQ is in Geneva, as a lot of international organizations are. Uh, and then there are regional offices spread out across the world and then sub-regional offices. And then generally every country in the world, I think bar three, has a Red Cross organization in that country, um, which we call national societies. Um, so, yeah, every country had their own representation in country and then generally they are the ones responsible for responding to things like disasters, you know, earthquakes, wars, that kind of thing um, within their borders. Um, so obviously the Australian Red Cross is that entity in Australia, but um, what I do is probably slightly different to what people are familiar with, you know, when they see the Red Cross on TV or after a cyclone or a bushfire, for example, like you said, I'm an international programs uh, directorate. So um, it's a little bit different. We basically manage the relationship between the Australian Red Cross um, and, you know, our relationship with other national societies in other countries and with regional and global sort of tiers of the organisation. Um, yeah. When you, when you say manage the relationship, what, mm. what, is that, what is that relationship and what does that management process look like? Yeah, so um, with the International Programs Directorate, there are focus countries. There are nine of them throughout the Asia-Pacific. Um, and for a range of reasons, those nine countries have been chosen. Um, and basically, we'll help them with themes or sectors that have been identified as, you know, priority. Um, and we'll assist them in basically trying to become more effective first responders in the face of emergencies. Um, so that'll range from things like epidemics, so things like health responses or things like um, cyclones, hurricanes, that type of thing. So disaster management, there's always, there's also like damage to property. So shelter and settlements, 
um, things like that. So it's quite a wide ranging, um, there are a lot of different things, you know, that that help, that assistance sort of takes. Um, so we're sort of managing the relationship across all of those different things in those countries. Yeah. And I'd imagine that the areas you work in, there's some obviously sensitivities around that. So we can speak in generalities, but do you want to kind mm. of run through what a, what a day or even a month or um, it might be better talking of it in terms of a project or a program? Mm. Do you want to talk about what your role actually is and kind of who you're managing, if you're managing, managing people and what kind of things you're actually trying to achieve during those programs? Sure. Can confirm I'm not managing anyone. I'm the newest, the youngest, and, <laughs> you know. I'm the young professional podcast. That's mate. why you're talking to me. That's why you're talking to me. Um, but, yeah, so you just t- touched on things like projects and things like that. I think development typically has been sort of perceived in that way. We go into country and we do X project and that kind of, kind of thing. I think the sector in general is sort of moving away from that slightly, and I think coronavirus probably helps that a little bit. Um, it's basically what's being termed as localization. So basically, um, upgrading the resources and the capabilities of organizations already in the country, which, you know, most likely has local people who are familiar with the local context, the local sort of understandings around, you know, language, culture, all those different sort of social aspects, um, and upskilling them to be able to be more effective uh, first responders. So instead of having, you know, people like me or people like that work with me, um, flying into country, fixing everything and then flying away again, it's sort of a more holistic, longer term transformation. Um, so we'll do things like, um, provide technical assistance in all those sectors. I've sort of mentioned before how to upskill in those areas. Um, yeah, to make these organizations sort of stand a little taller, and be able to deal with things more on their own. So would a good example be, say, that you mentioned disaster management before, say mm. you, you, know, you need uh, nurses or whatever on the ground, would it be like mm. providing some people like with some organising some first aid training so exactly. the people in the team are, are better equipped to deal with that situation? Exactly. That's exactly right. And things, you know, like um, the Red Cross system is primarily made up of volunteers. So providing training for volunteers with, you know, like you said, first aid or it might be epidemic control or, you know, things, things of that nature, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. Yeah. To the extent you can, mate, can, can you kind of mm. cover the gamut of what the Red Cross can assist with? And, and by that, I mean, we take the, the uh, example of nurses, for example, and I would imagine that say in a, a cyclone or whatever, mm. <clears throat> you might be assisting with rebuilding infrastructure or bringing in X, Y, and Z to help rebuild something like what other kinds of aspects of the society can the Red Cross help out in and, and what do they actually do? Yeah. Okay. So if you think about it in like sort of a time frame sort of thing, um, I th- also another thing, there's sort of been a step away from disaster response and trying to focus more on the preparedness, mm-hmm. you know, the best offense is the best defense or whatever that phrase. The best yeah. defense is offense. Yes. Best offense is defense. Yeah. You know, the more you're prepared, um, you know, the more fail safes you have in action, the more um, staff you have trained with certain, you know, certain skills, um, you know, the impact that, you know, an identical disaster might have might be far less if you're far more prepared. So um, yeah, like I said before, upskilling in, you know, specific staff or, you know, facilitating workshops or developing networks between, 
you know, health focal points in different countries so they can learn off of each other, that kind of stuff. It sounds, and it also sounds like project management or stakeholder management rather is a huge part of your job, given that mm. you're dealing with people all around the world. Very much so. It's, it's the crux of what we do. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you best manage that particularly when you've got different diaries and like different time zones and potentially yeah. different languages? It's hard. Like it's hard sometimes. And I think one thing that I've picked up during the pandemic is IT issues, you know, like working from home, not everyone has a stable connection. So just being on the phone often is very, very hard. Um, but yeah, it is a challenge and it's, it's just, it requires a certain flexibility. And I think that's sort of inherent to the people that work in the sector. You are a people person. Um, you know, you kind of roll with the punches. It's not always going to work out. Things take a long time sometimes, um, but it's sort of maintaining the momentum, keeping consistent and ensuring that you follow up on things. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's less and less about um, the actual, there's always a reason why things get done or don't get done. It's more reinforcing the relationship and being able to make sure that, okay, you need this. We'll do our best to get that to you. You need this. We'll do our best to get that to you. So um, yeah. Right. Can you hear what the, uh, I guess, career trajectory or, or potential um, opportunities for someone getting into somewhere like the Red Cross or the not-for-profit space more generally. Mm. Um, mm. You're a program officer now. What mm. does that look like? Say you do really well at that role and you kind of move up the chain if there is a chain. Where could someone like yourself be in, say, 10 years' time at an organisation like like the Red Cross? Oh, God, that's such an open-ended question. I mean, I think... The humanitarian aid humanitarian sector is just so broad that the word trajectory is almost redundant. Like it's just not, there isn't a defined sort of pathway that you go from this to this, to this, to this, it can be, you can turn it into anything you really want. There are so many different facets to humanitarianism or development or, you know, so, you know, if you can really, if you can get yourself into as many rooms as possible and hear about all these different ideas, if you can sort of try and forge a few, a few different areas where you're really interested or you're not so skilled, but you want to really upskill yourself in those different things, you could be anywhere in 10 years. You could be in a different country. You could be in the field. You could be at a regional office or, you know, national society like I am. Like there's no sort of set trajectory for someone like me or anyone in this sector. It's really where you want to take it and how you want to sort of mold it. Assuming we're able to travel, can you just run through oh, the God. difference between being in the field, like you said, and, and this is in a, in a paid capacity, not, not a volunteer, but can you run through what the difference would be in the field as opposed to working at an office, um, I guess, coordinating, yeah. coordinating efforts from, from afar? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's just invaluable. I mean, I haven't had the chance yet to be in field. I haven't gone to, you know, a conflict zone or a disaster zone to see what that environment is like. Um, but obviously, and, you know, I think you'll hold a little bit more credence because you are, when you speak in a room, because you understand, you know, the challenges and the commonalities and the things that happen in a situation that is more or less chaotic. Um, things don't always go to plan. Um, and I think sometimes if you're sitting in an office, in an air-conditioned office in Melbourne, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get a full idea of what the picture is like, you know, in the Middle East or in Africa or wherever, wherever it may be. Um, so I think 
both sides are equally important. They just provide different opportunities of learning. Um, but I think, yeah, if you're going to be in this sector, at least try to get into the field. That's in some capacity, whatever that might look like. And subject to your, uh, you know, whoever wants to get into the field, your mm. skill set being compatible with whatever the job is, is it more or less a case of, you know, I assume you're capable of it. You just put your hand up and if there's a role going, like you, you, you're likely to be able to get that experience? Um, yeah, I think, you know, if you're vocal about where your intentions lie or if you're vocal about what sort of things you want to really improve in, I think there's such a great potential for you to be able to at least be exposed to those ideas. It mightn't be immediate. It might be a sort of mid to longer term sort of, you know, strategy. But I think if you said you wanted to be involved more in humanitarian journalism or something like that, there are always ways for you to get involved, if, even if it's just shadowing, you know, colleagues, staff members, you might not physically be doing the work yourself, but if you're just sort of exposed to the, the you know, the comings and goings of that, then um, yeah, there's, there's always a way that's, there's always a way basically. I, I think that's a really good tagline. Mm. Yeah. There's a, there's a will, there's a way. There's always a yeah, way. There's always a way. Um, but you weren't always in the not not for profit space. And mm. um, when you, when you finished school, you, you studied a bachelor of urban and regional planning at RMIT. I did. What was the thinking there? Like, <laughs> the, and maybe, maybe I'm not joining the dots, but the two don't really seem uh, to be in the same sort of sphere. So could you just run us through what you were thinking when you finished school and yeah. uh, that's kind of translated eventually into you joining the Red Cross? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was at school, I wasn't really interested in the maths and the sciences. I, I just, I'm the other half of the brain. I was, you know, geography, history, languages, that sort of stuff. Um, and I guess I didn't really see how that could translate into me getting a job one day. It was just an interest that I had. Um, I didn't see how I could actually turn that into making money and, you know, buying food to eat at the end of the day. So um, I think I sort of, I found urban planning. I've always been involved in, you know, sorry, always been interested in, you know, how people perceive the world and how people can shape the world around them. And I think urban planning was the closest way that I could link those two ideas. Um, and so I thought that, yeah, urban planning would be very human centered and very human centric. And um, it would revolve a lot around that. And then when I got into it, I was like, Oh, perhaps I was slightly naive and that it didn't really turn out that way, but you know, that is just the way it is sometimes. And what, I, what were you focusing on then? During, during that degree, what were you focusing on? It was a lot of different things. Like it, they, there were th subjects like social policy, but there were also things like urban design and you know, land development, land use zones, that sort of thing, um, which is all very interesting in its own right. It just wasn't what I was looking for. Um, and I distinctly remember, I think a, a year or six months left to go, I was like, oh, maybe I should just drop out and find something that I like. And I was like, no, you're six months away. Just finish it, get a piece of paper, and then turn it into something that you like. And so that's what I did. And within that time, I sort of started to research about how to turn that into something that I was interested in. And I came across UN Habitat, the United Nations Human Settlements Program. And I applied for their internship program. And by some fluke, I managed to get in. And Do you want to just run through what um, UN Habitat is for, for those that haven't um, kind of heard of it before? Yep. So it's the UN organization that's basically dedicated to urban settlements, like settlements in general, both urban and rural, how it affects people 
um, invulnerable situations. I, I remember working on some projects that were um, focused on uh, what was it? The climate uh, vulnerability of people living in um, informal settlements. So what we would usually call slums and basically how to identify the risks that they faced. How can we manage those risks? What, what preparations can we make? And if something were to happen, how do we respond? So um, yeah, the interface between people and their built environment, which is more or less what I was looking for. Um, and then while I was there, um, it sort of confirmed in my mind, like, yes, this is actually what I want to do. And I feel like this is something I could be quite good at. Um, and, you know, there was that international flavor and I've always liked that sort of thing. Like I said, I like geography, history, languages and stuff like that. So I feel like it could merge my professional interests, my personal interests and mix it all into one. So could you just take us through what it was like to actually live and work in Japan? Like I've been there and I loved yeah. it. It was a super country. It was the first country I ever visited. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, one, how did you find making the transition going over there? Because I assume you didn't know anyone. And, and two, what was it like just working and living in a foreign country? I mean, you just, I encourage everyone to do it at least once. It's just, you will learn so much about yourself, what you're capable of, uh, what you're not so capable of doing. Um, Speaking ch- Japanese for you, uh, maybe? Shocking. <laughs> shocking. I tried. <laughs> there was only about a month between I found out that I was going and by the time I landed and I did my best to learn Japanese. But I think Japanese is the hardest language to learn for an English speaker and I nah, didn't take and take three uh, three alphabets is too much for me um but it's it's an amazing country with amazing people it's 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 honestly one of the greatest countries in the world and i think one everyone should go but it's definitely a place where you can feel like a fish out of water at times you know japan is quite a homogenous country there are not that many foreigners english is not that widespread or any other language is not that widespread um so i think it's not for the faint of heart. You need to have a bit of a, a, a backbone. You've got to be able to be quite resilient and deal with stuff, especially when dealing with, you know, bureaucracy and things like that, like leases and renting and stuff like that. That's really difficult. I remember, um, I can't remember why, but I was dealing with a, a real estate agent and he had studied pizza making in Italy and <laughs> just, he didn't speak any English, but I do speak not great Italian, but enough Italian. And we were actually discussing the rental agreement in Italian. So, you know, you'll find weird and wonderful ways to connect with people. But I think, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing more telling about a person than what they've learned while being, not just being in another country, but being there for a really long time. And um, yeah, Japan's a good place to do it. <laughs> for sure. Uh, Massimo, I wanted to touch on the like where your interest in working in the not-for-profit space really started. And I understand it was from that internship there, but had you always mm. had an interest say at school or when you're even a bit younger in terms of politics and history or international mm. relations, like where did that really stem from and how did you, I guess, chase that and, and explore yeah. that? I don't know. I've been thinking about this um, and it's something that I think about a lot. I don't know why. Um, I think generally just being, you know, uh, of different races you know my dad is italian my mum is half australian half chinese so i have three of my four grandparents born overseas so i think i've always just inherently been a part of different cultures and different you know linguistic groups and things like that so it's sort of who i am and it's just a part of who i am i don't really 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting existence for some people. I don't think everyone gets to experience that. But I think, yeah, you you perceive the world in a very different way to people who aren't like that, and that can be good and bad. So um, I think just the understanding of where people from thought group A and thought group B, they come together and how sort of decisions get made and how people coexist in different situations and when people are placed in situations of stress or conflict or disaster, emergency, how that can be played out. And I think, um, you know, now working in the humanitarian sort of field, that's of great benefit because you can see things from different viewpoints that perhaps someone else couldn't. And you can understand the stresses and the cultural sort of expectations about things that perhaps someone else couldn't. So, um, yeah, I think it's very important to what I do, but it's also a very just sort of intrinsic part of me. It's not so much a question, I guess, more of an observation. Um, so you don't really, I'm not sure that there'll be an answer, but it, mm. listening to you speak, there seems to be a lot of similarities between someone that works in the not-for-profit space, so say someone like the Red Cross and someone that goes yep. to work at a big corporate where it's like mm. you're bringing an interest in how two different parties interact with each other and why and the backstory of that and there's some problem that you're trying to solve and you all have to work with different stakeholders to bring everyone together and essentially solve that. Um, and mm. I guess where I'm going with that, it, it would seem that, you know, if you think that you're going down a path of getting into business and being a consultant or whatever it might be, but you're really mm. interested in the international space, mm. it, like there's, I think there's a little bit of a stigma in terms of going in, into not-for-profit. It's like, oh, you know, I won't make heaps of money. I don't really do anything that productive or whatever. But like you're doing some really important work and it's probably as stimulating or even more stimulating than going and working for a, for a corporate and trying to solve a business's problem. Um, that, that just seems to be an observation. Yeah, and I guess it just depends on where, you know, your interests lie. It's not necessarily a, a moral thing or, you know, a money-making thing. I think it's just it just depends on circumstance you know it, at the moment it just seems a good fit for me and for a lot of other people who knows maybe one day I will be in corporate who knows um but yeah I mean you know everyone's experience is different and in 10 years time I might look on I'll look back on this and it'll inform the way I deal with a corporation or some you know two different people from entirely different worlds so um yeah I completely agree that there are a lot of similarities in fact yeah uh, it sounds like well, my take on that is like uh, you, everyone's solving a, a problem or everyone likes, everyone thinks they're, they're doing problem solving. It's just like, what sort of problems do you want to solve? Yeah. And like what, 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 what is purpose to you? What is purpose to me? <laughs> that was a statement rather than a question. <laughs> we can go down that path. <laughs> I thought you were asking a very existential question. Oh, on, on that, mate, like mm. I think Luke kind of touched on it before, like, and you gave a bit of an answer, but mm. Like what, why do you, why do you go to work every day and, and, and be at the Red Cross and work as a program officer? Like what, what is the driver for you? Look, I mean, all you have to do is switch on the news and see what's going on, you know, and there is quite a lot of heartbreak going on and there, the world is not always a happy place for everyone. And I think that if you're in the situation or the position to be able to do something about that, which I definitely am, you know, do something about it. And I think that's the reason, you know, you're in a position to literally change the lives of people who not can't do it for themselves, but can't easily do it for themselves. So, um, yeah, just thinking about the people at the end of the chain or, you know, at the end of that sort of flow that, you know, you are directly impacting. I don't think there's 
much greater motivation than that, to be honest. I totally agree. Um, let's move a little bit forward a couple of steps. So you finished your internship at UN Habitat and you've got a taste and you yes. know, okay, this is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through the decision-making of when you decided, okay, that's what I want my career path to be. And then you enrolled in the masters of development studies. What was the thinking there? Why did you pick that course? Uh, what appealed to you and um, kind of what were the next steps in terms of getting into the field once you finished that? I picked it deliberately because it was broad. Um, and there were different, there were different areas or directions that you could take it. So like I mentioned before, a bit like the humanitarian sector itself, you, if you had an interest in environmentalism, you could take it into that gender studies, uh, disability studies. Like there are so many different ways that you could take it. And I wasn't a hundred, I mean, I had a fair idea of where I wanted to take it, but I didn't want to close off those doors just in case I had discovered something along the way that I wanted to investigate. So, um, that's why I enrolled in that course. Also because there was an internship program. And I think in this field, that's just so utterly important that that you need to have experience, even if it is unpaid, sadly, um, you know, in an office doing real world stuff, there's only so much you can learn in a classroom and by reading very dry academic articles sometimes. Um, So yeah. And then luckily enough, I was able to get an internship at the Red Cross and that's sort of where the story began. And that's why I'm sitting here talking to you, to be honest. Yeah. And during your, during your masters of development studies, like what is it, what is the uh, core, if there is a core focus, like what is the core focus of that two years? Yeah, there's not a core. That's the thing. Um, (laughs) You can, like I said, you can bend it in any way. So if you wanted to focus more on economic development and then you could follow up with all the subjects to do with that environmental environmentalism like that. But for me, it was also about, I'd heard along the grapevine that it would be a very international um, cohort. I think I was one of three or four Australians out of like more than a hundred. Like I was in the minority. With that, do people, is it um, so attractive of a course that people travel from other countries to come yeah. and study it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there were some agreements between foreign governments and, you know, that would, that's how they would upskill their staff, you know, similar to what I was talking about before. So we had a lot from like South Asia, Southeast Asia. We had a lot from South America, um, a few Americans, um, a couple of Europeans. So it was a very diverse cohort. Um, and, you know, with that brings it's riches. You know, you hear about people who have a wealth of experience, people who have been working for 20 years and you can learn from them and hear what works, what doesn't, what, you know, situations they've been in, how they got out of them, how they, you know, all these different types of things that um, I think is quite specific to a degree like this. Um, So yeah, it's not often you can say you're one of four Australians at an Australian university, really. On that, mate, was there, or did you find that uh, having such a, a range of people, because I assume you were one of the younger people that was studying the course, how did you find interacting with those guys, particularly the guys that are more senior that have a bit more life experience? Like, did you really look to to lean on them to to, to learn from? Yes and no. I mean, the, the intention is always there, but it's also very intimidating because we yeah. we literally have people who had worked in, you know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in, you know, Pakistan and things like that. So it's, and then there's just little old me, you know, from Melbourne. Like, you know, it's just, it, it's very daunting at times to approach people and go, hey, what do you think about this? But I think the the, the structure of the course was set up as such that you didn't really have a choice anyway. There was lots of group work. 
there's lots of sort of class facilitation debates, discussion. Um, and, you know, you always come out of the end, you know, the other end better for it. Um, so yes, it's definitely intimidating, but I think if you just bite the bullet, it's, it's so worth it. I've learned so much stuff from those people. I think the discussion of postgraduate study has come up a fair bit in, in the chats that we've been having. And like it does, we've spoken to people that want to do an MBA or are doing an MBA, for example, and that's quite a specific course. And then other people like yourself doing masters in, in different fields. But the one kind of core thing that people take out of it, it's the network or the people that they meet. In it. Um, and I haven't done postgrad study myself, but from what I hear, it's a lot of the work is more centered around the group work and um, extended assignments and that kind of thing that facilitates that networking. Mm. Do you think that you are a better employee or, or con- contributor to this, the Red Cross in, in your day-to-day role now that you've done this post-grad study that's more centered around that group work and, and, and that networking piece? Absolutely. Like I mentioned before, this sector is completely people-centric. You know, if you can't communicate Effectively, if you struggle in, you know, team working activities and stuff, then you, that's something you'll need to work on. Um, it's a very much a collaborative space. It's a collaborative um, environment and industry. So, and, you know, of course, from people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different linguistic groups. So, I mean, it not, might not be, you know, a natural sort of inclination to be comfortable in those situations, but you need to work at being able to um, at least contribute in some way. And I think, you know, the course at Uni Mel was fantastic at doing that. Fantastic at doing that. And it's paid dividends since. So on the topic of having to learn things and uh, like being, being prone in the deep end a bit, like what, what's yeah. some stuff that you really had to, to learn and, and focus on over, over your time? Oh God. Um, I think especially being the youngest and newest probably the least experienced you're thrown in a situation where there are already set processes and protocols and ways of working and people are in their rhythm and you sort of come in and you've got to sort of, you know, march the beat of their drum a little bit. Um, I'm fairly regimented in the way I work. I have my own processes. Um, so sometimes it requires a little bit of flexibility and, uh, not relinquishing, but, you know, you've got to sort of adapt, um, you know, to the way things already are. That being said, you know, there's, there's always space to be able to put up your hand and say, Hey, I think this works better. Hey, what if we tried this? Um, yeah. So I think, and you know, I think especially being newer, you have a, and you know, directly out of uni, you have sort of a very different perspective of the way things can and should be done. And I don't think people are necessarily averse to that. People want to hear, you know, what you think, what do you think will work? What hasn't worked, you know? So it's sort of that fine balance between the two. That's, yeah. one, of, that's one of the reasons why you get hired, right? They, they bring you in, they want someone, they want a fresh idea. Like they're not just, they're just employing you because they want to employ someone like you've yeah. been chosen. Yeah. And I think that's a, a hard thing for someone to understand, especially like entering a new organization at any age is difficult, but I think, you know, for a young professional, for a fresh graduate, you do have that sort of extra, I don't know. It's probably a fully internal thing, but I've definitely gone through it. Like the imposter syndrome thing, like how did I get into this place? You know, what went wrong? Who have I fooled? (laughs) Um, But it's true. You need to remind yourself, you have earned your seat. 
you know, you went through a process and, you know, people chose you, you know, therefore you have every right to say what you want to say as much as the next person, um, you know, and I think if you can demonstrate, you know, critical thinking behind that, you can demonstrate sort of, you know, creativity, um, then, you know, you're only doing yourself a disservice if you don't say anything or you don't get involved. Mate, on that, we're trying to make sure that we're kind of inspiring the younger generation. And by that, I mean, kids at school, uh, Mm -hmm. if they want to get into whatever industry we're talking about uh, and provide them some sets to do that. Um, I think if someone's listening to this, they go, oh, I need to do an undergraduate degree, then get a master's and then do all this international uh, you know, secondments and whatnot, and then I might get a position. Yeah. Yeah. What, are, what are some things that maybe some people, at, you know, in the age of at school, year 10 to year 12 or early mm-hmm. university could be doing in their own town or, or city um, yeah. that would bode well on, say, a resume or an application to a place like the Red Cross eventually? I think anything that facilitates interpersonal connection. So, you know, I've heard you guys on your previous episodes talking about things, you know, sporting, you know, organizations being, you know, a supervisor, a referee, working at a supermarket, managing staff, all of those skills that you pick up doing those sort of those things that you might not perceive to be that important are super important because all of those skills are transferable to a professional environment, you know, um, you know, volunteering and things like that. If you can give up your time and go and do some, some good work, you know, even for organizations like the Australian Red Cross, check out the website. Um, there are a whole range of different things that you can do and, you know, don't feel disheartened, you know, by listening to people saying you need to do this and this and this and this, in my humble opinion, that's rubbish. I didn't have a plan really coming out of high school. Um, I didn't have a step-by-step process of things that I needed to do. I just sort of took things as they came and things have panned out. You know, if you work hard if you identify a few different areas that you want to you know be good at become a bit of an expert in great you know or invest in yourself basically invest in yourself especially in the situation we find ourselves in ourselves in at the moment especially in melbourne you know lockdown's a perfect time you know jump on the computer do a few courses um especially in the humanitarian sector there are so many free courses that you can be doing online Coursera, um, edX, they have some great, you know, sessions available on there. Um, languages, all that kind of stuff that doesn't require you to be physically outside. Massimo, you mentioned the, the Red Cross website before. Is there, and, and just in terms of we're talking about getting, getting involved in the sector, is, is there any programs on at the moment that students could potentially get involved in that, that you know of? I'm hesitant to answer that because I'm not sure what it's like during the pandemic. Um, I know that in my, in my uh, department, there are internship um, opportunities available two or three times a year or thereabouts. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. Um, but there are always volunteering opportunities on the Australian Red Cross website. And it, it is a national organization. They're in all different parts of the country doing a whole range of different things. Um, and it's updated all the time. So um, go and check it out. Even if you're just curious, go and see what's on there. Um, if you can't find anything you like, check back in two weeks. There probably will be. So, yeah. And, and on that, mate, I think this is relevant for anyone in any industry really. And like Luke's hot tip, hot tip number one, um, if, you, if you wanted to get into any industry, like just go and search, you know, the top 10, top or top 20 
not-for-profits in Australia, go on their websites and then yeah. go on their careers page and set a Google alert for that careers webpage. And then anything that changes on that webpage, you'll get an email. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's just stuff like that. Um, New segment, Luke's top tip. Luke's top tip. I like that. <laughs> we can <all> start <laughs> it. Um, but, mate, I think heaps of good stuff mm-hmm. that we've run through um, there. Is there anything that you'd like to leave with kids coming through um, in terms of some advice or key skills that they could be working on um, outside of school or outside of uni that would really bode well for getting into the space? Yeah, I would say especially for, for kids who are, who are like how I was, like I don't think I was necessarily that confident things would be okay. Things will be okay. Things will turn out fine. Um, it might not be as fast as you want. It might not be, you know, through the pathway that you were hoping for, but all roads lead to Rome. No one, no one could have predicted that we'd be in a pandemic just as an example. Exactly. Of, you don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> it's just something we have to deal with at the moment. Um, that being said, I would, one thing that I told myself in Japan, and I remember this very, very clearly, is just say yes to opportunities and not to everything. Obviously, don't wear yourself out and wear yourself down, but say yes to things that will make you uncomfortable because that's the quickest way that you'll grow. You know, it'll get you into more rooms. It'll get you in contact with more people. And it'll, it'll really make you more attractive to prospective employers, you know, that you're willing to put yourself out there and give things a go. And, um, you know, what's the worst that can happen really? Mate, on that, I couldn't second that more. And with that, you know, we're talking to people that are between the ages, say 16 and early twenties, right? Like say you're mm. in uni or in whatever educational capacity you are outside your part-time job, if you've got one, like you still have a lot of time during the week, mm. um, whether that be at night or on the weekends, if you really want to get involved, just get onto one of these organizations, offer your time and put away a Sunday afternoon or put away yeah. a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday morning and do something because yeah, it might feel like work, but you, if you like it, then it'll be rewarding it for you. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's one of the really crucial things of this sector. It's not really a job at all. It's almost like a lifestyle. It's a way of life, you know? Um, you adopt all of these different things that you've picked up over the years and it really does become who you are. It, it, it influences the way you think, how you perceive things, people. Um, so, you know, I, I think, okay, we all want a Sunday afternoon to chill out and do whatever, but um, if this is something that really interests you or thinks that, or think that it might interest you, um, you know, just give it a go. It'll happen. It'll work. It'll be fine. Love it. All right. Well, let's leave it there. I think that's a good place to, um, to wrap up. And, and I think the key message from that is, you know, expand your horizons, go and travel when we can go and meet new people, yes. experience different countries and cultures and, and, um, even different workplaces. Cause you never know kind of what's around the corner of you to say yes to things. So, um, loved having you on mate. And it's really good to speak with someone in the not-for-profit space. And hopefully we've got some more around the corner. So appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.